Thanks for joining us at the Montrose Church Podcast. For more information, please visit us at montrosechurch.org. Have a great day. Uh, my name is Austin. I'm the high school pastor here at Montrose Church. And I have the privilege of opening the word today as we wrap up our series on blind spots, relation, relational blind spots. And um, we've, we've bitten off quite a, quite a big chunk here in trying to finish, uh, go through half of Genesis over the past uh, five weeks. We'll wrap it up today. But There's quite a lot that has gone on, and if you haven't been here, if you've missed a couple weeks, let me give you the brief rundown. We've been following the the story of Jacob's family and uh, the the 12 sons that he's had with four different wives, and if there wasn't any relational tension there, it's like, oh, well, hello. (laughs) Um, But there's some generational dysfunction that's worked its way right into this story, uh, Joseph uh, is the, the favored brother, and he's been basically given the world on a platter, and the other brothers don't like that so much. And so uh, there, there's some dysfunction there, and he gets sold into slavery, and his death is faked, and he's down in Egypt and falsely accused of crimes and thrown into jail. But uh, God sees him through uh, in these difficult circumstances. And he rises to prominence within Pharaoh's uh, leadership because he interprets a dream for Pharaoh that there are going to be seven years of plenty and then seven years of famine. And so Joseph is put in charge of stockpiling this food and preparing for this downtime. And it comes to fruition. And there is widespread famine throughout all of Egypt and spreading into Canaan where Joseph's brothers and father are still living. And, you know, the, the brothers are on... The family's on the brink of starvation, and so Jacob, the father, sends the sons down, except for Benjamin, because he's still playing favorites, because um, that doesn't work all that well. And he uh, sends the rest of the brothers down, and they get grain, and they come back. And, and Joseph, when, when the brothers come down, he immediately recognizes them, but they don't recognize him. And so he messes with them, and he speaks harshly of them. And... <clears throat> He, he starts to move the narrative in his direction because he's got some knowledge that they don't have. And so they, they're sent back. They, they take their food back to their father, Jacob. And they said, if, if, if we're to go back again, we have to bring Benjamin. And he's like, no, no way. That's not happening. But then they, get, they run out of food and they're on the brink of starvation again. He says, well, if we're going to die, we might as well send Benjamin uh, as well. And so they go back down to Egypt. And that's where Dave... Uh, was talking last week about the story, and Joseph is still speaking harshly. He's still moving that narrative. He's got the, he's, he's got the position of power, and they have no clue that this is their brother that they sold into slavery and faked his death, and um, they, they, they get grain again, and Joseph sends them on their way, but he instructs his officials to take the silver cup off his table and place it in the grain sack of the youngest kid, Benjamin. And so as they are leaving, they get a little bit of a head start, and Joseph sends his officials after him and instructs them, accuse them, how dare you steal from Pharaoh's table, from from Joseph? They they don't know Joseph. How dare you steal from Pharaoh's table? And the brothers declare their innocence. We are innocent. They are are pleading. We, We wouldn't do any such thing. And they're so confident in their innocence that they say, if you find this, let the person responsible, you can, you can have their life and the rest of us will be your slaves. 
those are big words. And lo and behold, they open up all the grain sacks. And the youngest brother, Benjamin, they pull the cup out. And the brothers are just wrecked. They are devastated because they know that Benjamin is basically on loan from their dad. And, and if they don't come back with him, they're done. Jacob will fall apart. It's, it is not a good story. And so they pack their stuff back up. They go back to Joseph. And they are pleading for their lives. And this is where we'll pick up the story. But before we jump into the meat of this story, as I was thinking through this, I was thinking, man, if I were in Joseph's position and my brothers faked my death and sold me into slavery, of course I'd mess with them. I would, I would mess with them a lot. <laughs> like my mind goes there and, and it goes there, uh, it goes there, you know, not in, in this context, maybe what Joseph was doing, but... I thought before we jump into the meat of the sermon, I'd tell this funny little story. If you, if you see in front of you, there's a, a connect card, a thin white card that, you know, we have those there in case, you know, you're new or you've got a prayer request, or you'd like some more information on a ministry, that you can fill that out and put it in the offering plate or give it to one of the ushers. And when you do that, you'll get a, a call from one of the pastoral staff if you're looking to get some more information on junior high ministry, then John will call you and say, hey, I got this you know, card that said you, you're interested. What questions can I answer for you? So I thought I'd use this to my advantage. Our beloved Will Shine is uh, leaving at the end of the summer to move to Florida. And so I thought, I'm gonna mess with Will. And so I took one of these Connect cards and I changed my handwriting and created a fake email address and a fake phone number and so it wouldn't be traced back to me and I, created a young woman in her 30s, obviously single, as Will is married, and, uh, and, I, th and I thought, I'm going to write on the back of this, I would love to take you out to dinner just to say thank you for the worship ministry that you have provided here at Montrose Church, you know? And so I dropped it in the offering plate, and that was a couple months ago, and I forgot about it until, until a couple weeks ago when in between services, Will comes up to me and says, Austin, um, I, I, for the last month, I have been trying to track down this, uh, this girl. Um, do you know Natasha Morris? I have tried 10 different permutations of her email. I called her phone. It didn't work. It's kind of awkward because I'm married. Like, she wants to take me out to dinner, but it's like, maybe, maybe there's coffee because I talked about this with my wife. And like, uh, this is, do you know her? <laughs> no. No, I don't, but I'll keep my ears open, Will, in case I hear from Natasha Morris. So I told a few more people about that, and then later in the week, Will put it together. It's like, you're Natasha, aren't you? <laughs> yes, I am. But I like that idea of kind of taking a little bit of knowledge that maybe he doesn't have and playing the narrative. We, we got a good laugh out of it. Um, Joseph... Joseph, on the other hand, it's not so much a laughing matter and that there are lives at stake here and his brothers have come back down to uh, his place of residence to the palace and they are begging for their lives and saying, we'll be your slaves, just let, let the kid go. And um, it, it goes, it gets to the point where Joseph can no longer play the game anymore. He can't hold it in. He can't move this narrative and can't speak harshly uh, in this way because um, his brothers have no clue. They have no clue that the person that they are pleading with their lives for is the, 
the brother they sold into slavery and faked his death, and he has risen to prominence, and he is the one who is helping to save not only the nation of Egypt, but the region around them from this famine. And he can't go through with this power play anymore. And the story quickly turns. And Joseph has every single right to have bitterness and animosity and hatred and this vengeance in his heart, but he doesn't. And here, as we wrap up this series, we get to see that reconciliation and restoration is about to take place. And if you hear nothing else today, I would hope that you hear this, that reconciliation within relationships is not only healthy for you and for me, but it models Jesus to those around us, the one who reconciled relationship with us, the greatest example of that. And that's what we are called into. You know, we've been tackling like half of Genesis. There's only six more chapters to wrap this thing up, so buckle up. We're going to be here for a while. Um, just kidding. I'm going uh, I'm, I'm to land the plane here. We'll, we'll be just fine. But we're going to pick up in Genesis chapter 45. The words will be up on the screen, and this is right we're picking up right as a story where, where Joseph's brothers are begging for their lives. Here it is, Genesis 45. Then Joseph could no longer control himself before all his attendants, and he cried out, Have everyone leave my presence! So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him, and Pharaoh's household heard about it. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. Then Joseph said to his brothers, come close to me. And when they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now there has been famine in the land and for the next five years there will be no plowing and reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So then it was not you who sent me here, but God. He made me father to Pharaoh, lord of his entire household and ruler of all Egypt. Now hurry back to my father and say to him, this is what your son Joseph says. God has made me lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, don't delay. You shall live in the region of Goshen and be near me, you, your children and grandchildren, your flocks and herds, and all you have, and I will provide for you there, because five years of famine are still to come. Otherwise, you and your household and all who belong to you will become destitute. Wow. This is, this is a shift in the story. This is deeply emotional. There's this roller coaster of feelings that have got to be happening here. And it's, it's, a, it's a powerful story, especially in a culture where the people who have are in charge, they make the rules, and the have-nots are left to the whim of whatever the people in charge say. And Joseph's brothers are terrified. They're like, well, okay, we're done. We're dead. It's over. It's all catching up to us now. And it doesn't go there. And that's so incredible. And Joseph says, hey, come, come near me. And I imagine he takes their faces in his hand 
and make sure they're looking him in the eyes and says, I'm your brother Joseph. You, it was God who sent me here, not you. There's something bigger going on right now. And his brothers are just coming to realize that. Joseph sees the bigger picture despite the betrayal by his brothers, the pain of his circumstances, and God has seen him through to this position to save lives. You know, Joseph is so far away from bitterness and anger. He's stepping into reconciliation, and it, uh, he goes to the point of saying, hey, bring everybody down here. Go get the whole family. Go get dad. And as you read in this story, that's, seven, that's 70 people, not including the brothers. Hey, go get everybody and bring them down here. I'm going to take care of you. This thing isn't going away. People are going to be starving, and you will be taken care of because God has put me in this position here. And um, his brothers are a bit leery. I mean, wouldn't you be? Like, is he buttering us up? Like, what's going on here? Bring everybody down here, all that you own, all that you possess. Is he just going to, like, wipe us out as this act of retribution? Like, they're, they're a little hesitant at first. And that thought doesn't leave them, as we'll see as we continue this story. But Joseph, he loads them up. Food, pack mules, new clothes, money, Carts to bring the whole family down and says, go get, go get everybody, bring them. And when the brothers show up to dad, they say, hey, that's got to be kind of an awkward situation, awkward conversation, right? <laughs> hey, remember that time when we said Joseph died and we brought you his clothes and we faked, faked his death? Yeah, that didn't happen. He's alive. And it's like, what? I mean, it's just got, again, a, a roller coaster of emotions that have got to be hitting Jacob, their father. But he sees everything that they have brought along with him. He's like, okay, there's got to be some truth to this. And so they pack up the whole crew. They head to Egypt. And it says when they're getting close, in chapter 46, it says, Joseph had his chariot made ready and went to Goshen to meet his father. As soon as Joseph appeared before him, he threw his arms around his father and wept for a long time. His dad said to Joseph, now I'm ready to die, since I have seen for myself that you are still alive. This is a powerful moment here. We read that Jacob at this point is 130 years old, and there is a lifetime of hurt and grief and pain that all of a sudden gets pushed aside and there's a little bit of hope. We read that for 17 more years, Jacob gets to live in Egypt to be taken care of with his whole family. And there's this path back towards reconciliation, not only with dad, but with the brothers. And it's, it's interesting. The, the Egyptians don't really like uh, shepherds. And so they're like, okay, you're going to be in Goshen. You'll stay over here. We'll be over here. But even though they don't like shepherds, Pharaoh himself says, Hey, if they have any special skills, put them in charge of my livestock. It's a big change in circumstance here. And so for 17 years, they get to, they get to live in this land with Joseph, 
and I know we're covering a lot of ground here, but, but Jacob nears the end of his life. And he passes on his blessing to his sons. And there's a significant moment that I saw in chapter 48 when Jacob said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face again, and now God has allowed me to see your children too. This is legacy stuff. Like as, as we get older, it starts to become less about us and more about what we're going to pass on. And so Jacob is basically on his deathbed, and he, he's fulfilled. There is hope and restoration that has come about because God was in this story. That's such a powerful moment that shouldn't be lost. But it's crazy that this story takes another dark turn, that as soon as Jacob dies, all the brothers are like, oh no, there goes our protection. Is he gonna, is he gonna wipe us out now? Like he's been treating us nice for a little while. But they have this fear, this dread that's back inside of them, and they're wondering what is going to happen. And so we're gonna read from Genesis chapter 50, and then I think we can pull some good lessons out of this scripture here. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, what if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? So they, went, or they sent word to Joseph saying, your father left these instructions before he died. Did he? Or are you just making this up? This is what you are to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. You got to throw that in there because that, then he'll definitely forgive you. When their message came to him, Joseph wept. His brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. Wow. I don't know if I could have gone there, but he did. What a powerful, tangible example of reconciliation within relationships that were so broken. It's not really a history lesson. It's more of a gut check. How you doing with your relationships right now? Ugh. Maybe not that good. But I saw some, some pretty powerful lessons that I think we can pull from this story. The first one is this, that Joseph doesn't hold a grudge. And I was writing this, I was like, this is a great point <laughs> that I hate. <gasps> ah, I, it feels good to hold on to that grudge. I'm justified in not having to interact with that person who hurt me or hurt those around me. <clears throat> I'd rather hang on to that. God says, yeah, maybe that's not, maybe that's not the best thing. That's not how it works in my kingdom. Does that mean that we just forgive and forget and we're best friends and right back to normal as if nothing, no harm was done? No, that's not really how it works because there's some genuine hurt that's probably been inflicted on you or maybe you've been the one who's inflicted that hurt. 
you know, we, we talk about this a little bit at Montrose Church, if you've been around for any amount of time. We talk about what it looks like to have healthy relationships, to not just give yourself away without establishing a little bit of, of trust. You guys maybe remember the, uh, the castle analogy? Uh, you remember that one? Like where the stronghold of the tower of the castle is your heart? We don't let a ton of people in there unless they've earned some trust. They have to kind of work their way into the castle, and we're the ones who have control of that. So maybe they're outside and across the moat, and we let the drawbridge down, and they come across, and we spend a little bit more time with them, and then we can open the gate, and then they'll step into the courtyard, and then if a little bit more trust is established, then we'll let them into a room, and maybe eventually we'll let them get up to the tower to, to see the innermost part of, of who we are. There, there's some good boundaries to have within relationships, and it's not like trust is just automatically earned, and okay, you're right back to it. No, it takes some time to reestablish that trust. You know, Dave last week talked about uh, how modern science and psychology are, are catching up with, with this thing here, that it's actually good to let go of bitterness. It's good to forgive. It's healthy for us. And it means we don't hold a grudge. We can learn from that hurt. We can let it shape and mold us, but we can't let that sit and take root in who we are because then we ourselves will be bitter and angry people. It's a gut check. It's, it's a gut check to me. I have to let go and forgive. Even if the person on the other side is totally not, they, they don't see it. And maybe they will never forgive, but guess what? I have to forgive and I have to move past that because if I hold on to it, then I'm just a bitter, angry person who's holding on and just saying, this is gonna define who I am and that can't define who we are. The next lesson that I see in this is that Joseph seeks restoration with his brothers. It's one thing to forgive and say, okay, good, I'm gonna move past that and I'm going to heal but then he steps back into that relationship. He has every right to say, nope, I'm gonna hold at distance these people who hurt me. But he steps back into that and he is seeking out restoration. And that's tough. Like you have to take the higher road. You have to have a big glass of humility and say, okay, I'm gonna let it go and I'm gonna step in and say, can we take one small step forward in restoring this relationship? And what would happen in your life right now if you sought restoration with someone who's wronged you? What if you or I are the offending party and someone comes to me and says, hey, I need to seek some restoration in our relationship, some reconciliation? I mean, if I'm honest, I get a little defensive at that point. I didn't, I didn't hurt you. That's, that's not for me to judge. What would that look like? Would we be open to even stepping into restoration within a relationship? And that can be on a whole bunch of different levels. It could be friends, it could be family, it could be school, it could be coworkers. I mean, you, you fill in the blank. They're, we're human. We are prone to not do so great. And we cause hurt. But we can't live there, we can't stay there. And, um, you know, with my, with my high school students, uh, I, I teach them when, when we take a, an action, we're saying, hey, well, let's do something about this. Let's not just be a book club and read this. Let's let it be a part of our lives and change us. 
It's not like, oh, okay, I'll pray about that. No, you won't. <laughs> Let's be honest. <laughs> I'll pray about it. So I say to my high school students, make it a tangible, measurable, specific action. So in seeking restoration with someone, maybe write down, on Tuesday before lunch, I will call or email fill in the blank. And maybe it's just to reestablish conversation, a connection. Maybe it's to treat them to a cup of coffee and just say, hey, there's some stuff I gotta get off my chest. But if it's tangible, measurable, specific, then that's a lot more prone. You tell somebody about it, like, hey, on, tu on Tuesday before lunch, I'm gonna do this. And they call you and say, hey, how'd you do with that? They didn't do it. There's some accountability there. The next lesson that I see in this is that Joseph meets a current need despite the pain of the past. And that's kind of a tough one. We're, we're pretty good at, you know, when there's a, a death in the family or an, a new baby has been born or a job is lost. We're, we're pretty good at like showing up with a meal or, you know, setting up, you know, meals for, for a few weeks or a little GoFundMe to help cover the costs of, of a loss or something like that. Joseph's brothers and family are on the verge of starvation. There is a genuine need there. We are hungry. And he could have said, nope, you're spies, get out of here, go. And he could have just he could have let them go. But he said, no, I'm going to meet a current need despite all that mess, that history that we have. And he steps in and he does, not only does he give them grain and give them food, but he puts their money back in their grain sacks and sends that with them. And in this knowing of a need, you have to pay attention to the point before. <laughs> because if we don't know what's going on in somebody's life, how can we meet a need? And so I would encourage us this week, be on the lookout for a current need that we can meet. And maybe that's maybe not even in a, in a broken relationship that needs reconciliation. Maybe that's just in a current relationship that, that, that doesn't need any restoration. I was thinking about this in, in a couple... A few years ago, there were some friends of ours who had just gotten new tires on their car. Like, new tires feel good, right? Like, we're, we're good for a little while. We're going to stay connected to the road. And somebody decided that uh, they were going to slash their tires, all four of them, brand new tires. It's like, oh, my gosh. And they didn't have a ton of cash at that time, and so I talked with Amy. I was like, hey, what are we going to do? There's a current need. What are we going to do? All right, we'll buy them new tires. It's not a, I'm going to hang this over your head, look what I did, now you owe me. It's a gift here. Be blessed. Let this relationship grow. This is modeling who Jesus is, meeting a current need, despite the circumstances. The last point that I see in here is that Joseph sees the bigger picture and acts accordingly. He says, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. You see, circumstances didn't dictate Joseph's faith in God. And I think for us, if you're anything like me, we can be so prisoner to the moment. Life is not going well. I'm in a very difficult circumstance. God must be displeased with me. Or maybe we're over here. Oh, life is going great. God must be pleased with what I'm doing. Neither of these are really good theology because circumstances are going to change. They're going to go up and down, and that can't deter us from our 
ultimate goal of serving and honoring Jesus Christ. If you're over here in the tough, difficult time, I've been there. I know that that's no fun. It's okay to have some feelings of anger and frustration, questioning God. That, that, that's okay to feel that stuff. But it can't take root in our heart or our head. Those are merely visitors that are passing through. Because if they set up shop, then all of a sudden we're in this negative cycle and we ourselves are bitter and angry and God must be displeased with us. No, it's not that. What I've learned in my, my few years of life is that God teaches through times of difficulty and pain. Character is developed there. And so I'd encourage you, if you're over here and life is, is doing all right and you're, you're kind of past maybe a difficult situation, look back and say, how did God shape and mold me and change me in the middle of that circumstance? And all this to say that we are taking an incredible example from Joseph in reconciliation within relationships. It's healthy, it's good, and it models Jesus to those around us. The greatest example of reconciled relationship between God and us, and it is only right that we should extend that to each other. And so what will that look like for us this week? What tangible, measurable, specific steps will we take in stepping into or towards reconciliation within relationships. Um, I'll end with this. My, uh, it's Father's Day, so happy Father's Day uh, to those dads out there. I'm a dad. Uh, it is a, it's a difficult position. It's hard. You are, you're always on, right? It's like you can't, take, you can't switch the dad mode off. Um, that, it, it, I'm, I'm prone to mistakes, uh, just as, as anybody else is. But if I'm honest, these last few, few days have been kind of tough for me. Um, on Friday, marked the three-year anniversary of my best friend passing away. He was my age, left behind a wife and two kids. And so I understand that Father's Day is not always celebratory. This can be a really tough day for some people. And with my friend passing away or, you know, my mom's relationship with her dad was really strained. Um, I, there, there's some stuff within my family that I understand that it's not, it's not always a great day. Like, I, I want to be over here like, yes, celebrate me. <laughs> Let me watch golf and sit on the couch. <laughs> but I also understand over here that there's some pain and some hurt that, that's been brought up. Maybe dad inflicted some pain upon you or he's been absent or parents are divorced. I don't, I don't, I don't know what that is, but I, I just wanted to recognize in front of everybody that while it is celebratory, you may be a new dad or a granddad, and we want to celebrate you. I just want us to be sensitive that this might not be the, the easiest day for people around us. Um, and so my, uh, my relationship with my dad, it, it, it's all right. We're, we're doing okay. If you know anything about my story uh, in high school, though, not so good. Um, especially junior high and early high school, uh, you know, my dad... Like, my dad's a good guy. He's a pastor. He's, like, he's following Jesus. Um, maybe he didn't parent in the way that I received all that well. He kind of was a my way or the highway. Uh, not a lot of room for dialogue. And don't ask a ton of questions. And I was like, oh, your way or the highway? I'm going to take the highway. <laughs> Sounds good over here. Um, 
And I appreciate that my dad and my mom, they, they had rules and that, but at, at the time I didn't. Um, so much so that I said, anything that you tell me to do, I'll do the exact opposite of that. Normal teenager stuff, right? Um, and so I, I was hanging out with um, the other pastor's son in, in ninth grade, the other pastor at our church. He was a little bit further ahead of me on the, uh, the highway to hell. Um, <laughs> and uh, the, two, the two of us together didn't make a great combination. And so we were hanging out one night. We were spending the night over at um, the other pastor's home. But we had gone out with friends and we were drinking and got into a little bit of trouble. Thought it was all good. Went back home, fell asleep over at uh, their house until middle of the night. My dad shows up, get in the car. Oh, this is probably not good. <laughs> On the way to the police station, he's, I mean, he's fuming. He got a call from the local cops and said, your son's in a bit of trouble, get him down here. That, that's not good, especially when we're already butting heads and he's fuming. I'm a little tipsy from that night, let's just be honest. And so I'm like, yeah, whatever, Dad, I don't care. And like, oh, of course, that's just going to make him even that more angry. Almost to the point of like where we pulled the car over and went toe-to-toe. Like it was, it was almost at that point. Thankfully, it didn't go there. Um, and it got resolved. But I tell that story just to, to let you know that my relationship with my dad wasn't always that great. There was things that I was doing that were against what he was hoping. He didn't intend any harm to me, but maybe he could have parented a little bit different, invited a little bit more conversation. I'll just say we, we probably could have done a little bit better. And it was this slow arc back towards restoration and reconciliation within our relationship. You know, I went away to college and you know, started to do some growing up uh, on my own. And I remember this point I don't know, maybe it was late college. I was back home visiting. And I went out to lunch with my dad, and we were sitting across the table. And I just have this distinct memory of saying, like looking him in the eye and saying, hey, remember back in high school, that jerk of a kid that I was? I was at fault there. I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? And he looked over and he said, yeah, of course I forgive you. Keep going. I believe in you. I'm proud of you. I was like, and, and that, was, that was probably the extent of the moment right there. You know, my wife asked me, she's like, so what were you feeling in that moment? And why did you feel the need to ask? How did your dad react? I don't know. I don't know. I'd have to go to a year of therapy to figure that, those answers to those questions out. And I, don't, I, don't, I honestly, I don't remember that stuff, and, and neither does my dad. I called him yesterday and asked him. He's like, yeah, I kind of remember those, those details, but it was a point of growth for me as a man where I had to forgive myself, one, because I can be my harshest critic, but then I needed that forgiveness from my dad in order to grow and move forward in reconciliation. It's not, it's not an easy conversation to have, and I, I don't know if that's with your dad, or I don't know who, who that reconciliation needs to happen with, but I just wanted to tell that story to let you know that, that it is possible. It's small steps forward in seeking forgiveness or forgiving someone else because reconciliation within relationships is not only healthy for the present right here, but it models Jesus to those around us. So I would hope that we would lean into the power of that today. And if there's someone that God's putting on your heart to reach out to and say, hey, just, just reach out. Lean into some of those, those steps, so the lessons that we can pull from the story of Joseph. Will you pray with me? 
Jesus, thank you that you are the ultimate example. You are the one who has brought us to restoration and reconciliation with yourself. God, you call us to model that to others, to extend forgiveness. God, I, I pray that there are uh, steps forward in relationships towards reconciliation despite the pain of the past. And God, maybe if there is a, a situation that, that is unresolvable, would you help us to learn from that and to forgive and to move forward? God, we trust that you are working for our good even when we can't see it, when we're in the muck of life. And God, we trust that you will bring us out of that. You will bring us to wholeness as we pursue you. We trust you in your name. Amen. Thanks for joining us at the Montrose Church Podcast. For more information, please visit us at www.montrosechurch.org. Have a great day.